This episode of the Commerce Marketer Podcast is brought to you by the Bronto Marketing Platform, a flexible yet powerful software that helps you grow revenue, save time, and optimize marketing resources. If you're interested in making sophisticated email marketing easy, visit bronto.com. That's B-R-O-N-T-O.com. Welcome inside the Commerce Marketer Podcast Studio. I am your host, Greg Zakowitz, and today is the obligatory Trends in 2020 episode, but we're going to do it a little bit different this year. In this episode, we're looking at making some of those predictions and trends to watch based on someone else's podcast conversations. So to do the heavy lifting, I welcome back to the show the Chief Commerce Officer at Something Digital and host of the Future Commerce Podcast, Philip Jackson. Without any prep, because I have no idea what he's going to say, I trust he's going to lay out what he expects to be the top retail topics in 2020 based on conversations he's had on said Future Commerce Podcast. So without any further ado, I welcome back to the show, Philip Jackson. Philip, thanks for being here, man. Hey, thank you so much, Greg. And uh, it's been a long time. A lot's changed in the last few years and uh, can't wait to get into some of this and uh, see see what you know a new decade holds. So pretty pumped about today. Yeah. And I, I mentioned back to the show. So you were one of the very first interviews I ever did on this podcast. Episode five, I think we won the <laughs> publishing with it. We're now, I don't know, in the 60s. So it's pretty good. We recorded in a lovely basement in a Vegas hotel. Which we did. Was, uh, which is perfect. I mean, it was a beautiful setting. And you impressed us with your fish knowledge as well. I don't know if you remember that. Do you have, I do. I do remember actually. Do you remember how many fish you got in fifteen? I seconds? don't, but I, I remember having some oddballs, uh, which was kind of fun. I am not going to ask you that question today, but it is six fish to save the listeners the uh, anticipation here. So six <laughs> fish in fifteen seconds. So good times. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Philip, real quick, I'm going to ask you for a couple of different backgrounds to kind of set the stage here, but let's start with uh, Something Digital. So can you give us a quick rundown about who Something Digital is and what type of companies you guys work with? Yeah, sure. Uh, Something Digital is a full-service digital e-commerce agency. So we focus on delivering strategy, insights, uh, growth, and uh, and actually like engineering, web development, and creative for some of the largest brands in the world. Uh, And recently, we're building out a you know, a pretty strong direct-to-consumer practice as well. Uh, I've been with the company for eight years, and I have an engineering background these days. I help lead strategy for named accounts, and I, you know, I manage our go-to-market. And, and our go-to-market really is to lead with thought leadership. We have a culture of openness, so, you know, we, we want everybody to share in our community. You know, that comes from my open-source background. We want everyone to share from what we're learning in our community. We don't hold on to knowledge. We give it away freely. And so that comes out in a number of verticals. One of those is podcasts. And yeah, that's that's how I also am a podcaster. And a podcast called Future Commerce, like I mentioned twice already, which makes sense why I'm asking you about 2020 trends. Yeah. Can you just give the audience, in case they don't know, just a little bit background about what the Future Commerce podcast is, types of conversations you guys have and things like that? Yeah, sure. So my co-founder at Future Commerce, Brian Lang, and I uh, started a podcast three years ago. And it was based around conversations we were having about the stuff nobody was talking about in our industry, which, you know, we felt like nobody's having the real conversations, which everybody was talking about tactics and conversion rate optimization and, you know, how to win customers, you know, or how to close sales. But our, our question was sort of more existential. Where are we going? What does this all mean? Right. And so our thesis at Future Commerce has evolved in the last few years uh, to be more of one of how, how are we participating in society? So if you'll suffer me a two minute rant, um, oh, you man. we believe that commerce is a global connector. It's the thing that brings diverse groups of people from diverse backgrounds together. We also believe that entrepreneurship 
is the means in capitalism of having a hand up or or creating value and uh, upward mobility in society. And so therefore, retail entrepreneurship, founders, direct to consumer uh, is very uh, is a very trendy thing right now. Retail entrepreneurship and advancement in capital are the things that are actually creating advancements in the world and technology and also advancing people in society. And so we are talking about the human issues behind retail because we believe that uh, because commerce is the driver of our economy, that uh, the human issues at the core are the things that actually affect the brands that listen to us the most. So these days we talk about everything from sustainability to tariffs. We talk about Gen Z, but we also talk about uh, new emerging psychographic profiles like Carly, uh, who is it's an acronym for can't afford real life yet. And these are things that we're talking about, about people who are participating in the economy or who are creating and founding new businesses, but they have to connect with a consumer who has more expectations of them now than they ever have. So that's what we talk about at Future Commerce. And we use all that data and insights and the people who come on the show tell us their story in that vein to predict what the next, you know, three to five years might look like in the world of consumer brands. Very cool. So when I asked you to come on the podcast, I didn't say, hey, give me your top three, top five, top 10 kind of trends. I'm going to leave it somewhat open-ended for you. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah, some- yeah. I could come up with three, five, or 10. It, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's all we think about, but yeah, yeah, well, you, please. You've got a hard stop at the top of the hour, so we're, we'll we'll cut it down to whatever we think is most important to you. So um, yeah. It's somewhat of the you read the story that you write, and you get you mentioned some of the things that you guys talk about, which are core mm-hmm. principles, even a future commerce, the company itself with sustainability and things like that. So, why don't we, knowing that we have somewhat of a limited time here, let's let's start with just kind of listing out what you think some of those top trends for next year are going to be, and then we can dig into a couple of those and and just kind of stop wherever we run out of time. So that sound like a good uh, uh, use of time? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with three, and let's say what if you look at three things that you think are going to dominate the conversation next year. What are those three things you you think you would have? Yeah, so the dominating of conversation right now as we're closing out this decade in 2019 is how is venture capital in this industry like actually promoting uh, social good or creating sustainable businesses? And the common conversation is that it's not. It's been a magical time for <laughs> for creating a lot of expensive research and development uh, for big CPG brands to not have to invest in it themselves, and then to acquire, uh, you know, acquire all this free market research and customer acquisition and do it, you know, for themselves or do it better for themselves. We've seen a lot of direct to consumer brands, especially in, in venture backed direct to consumer brands that have been acquired in in the last ten years. And I think what's leading that conversation is the WeWork. SoftBank uh, Vision Fund debacle, and they're filing this one. We're seeing their their founder. Uh, we we see a lot of the focus coming off of actually building sustainable businesses or returning to creating sustainable businesses and coming away from eyeballs and and uh, user growth at at all costs. Yeah. So from a retail business perspective, I think the top of the conversation next year will be how do we create more sustainable businesses that are profitable. We'll hear a lot more about EBITDA. We'll hear a lot more about you know private equity actually might be a bigger conversation as well, where private equity is coming to try to build businesses that are profitable and sustainable. So I think we'll see the pendulum swing back a little bit more that way. 
but that's that's probably the first prediction is like from a just from a quantitative standpoint if you ask people in the industry the things that they care about and the founders what what issues are top of mind for them i think you know capital will be a little harder to obtain going forward and you'll have to have you know your business plan will have to be based around not just user growth but actually growth of of profits and uh, long term viability so there's probably a million reasons why. I mean, it, it's always happened, right? Businesses, people have business ideas and they get funding and they fail. And that's not a new thing that's always happened. Right. But it seems, I don't know if it's because it's it's it could be like bad news, right? We have these conversations in my household about the world. And it's like, well, you just hear about everything now. And venture capital and businesses failing could be the same thing. You just, everything's more widely known. But oh, 100%, you also get, yeah. you look at instances like WeWork and things like that. Do you almost get the sense that, venture capitalists were throwing money around because of buzzwords. So AR, VR, customer experience. And then there are people that are able to, this is probably going to be the small minority, but do you think there are people who are actually trying to take advantage of that and be like, all right, let's get some half-assed business idea. Let's throw it out there, try to get some funding, suck some money out of it, that thing goes on there. And that's kind of a, a personal finance growth model. Mm. Do you think there's a lot of that happening? That's a That's a really good question. And probably three years ago, I would have said an emphatic yes. Uh, I'm trying not to be the guy who (laughs) (laughs) I want to believe the best of everybody, right? I don't know people's intentions. I do think that on the face of it, a lot of the businesses that fail that we hear about that fail seem obvious with hindsight. In hindsight, like how could they not have seen in that moment? The thing that venture or probably anybody, even angel are investing in is the promise of, you know, one of three things, disruption in a marketplace where you have, you're sort of unfairly at an advantage to disrupt an otherwise nascent industry. So that's one thing they're looking for. Competence in a team where you've created a moat uh, and capability as a team that no other has at at the moment. So you're kind of taking a bet on a team or unbelievable confidence in a very charismatic founder who is probably going to do something huge at some point in their life. And wouldn't you rather have that relationship now and get behind them now rather than, you know, miss that opportunity to build relationship for when they will be successful? It's sort of like the foot in the door. And I think that we do see that a lot. We did a whole series about this actually at Future Commerce, not to be too self-promotional, but it's called Step by Step. And and we talked to, you know, Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road VCs. Uh, we talked to New York VCs on that series. And uh, they have very, very different <laughs> <laughs> approaches to uh, to the way that they're trying to build, especially retail businesses. So I'm sure there are always bad actors somewhere in the universe. But I, I couldn't tell you if that's definitely the case in what we're seeing right now or if Adam Newman had that sort of mindset. I think some people actually wind up just drinking their own Kool-Aid, if I had to guess. I think they believe what everybody around them is telling them that they're going to change the world. And they seem to have the Midas touch, some of them, right? But uh, yeah, I think going forward in, in the next year, if I had to hazard a guess, I think we're going to see a return to uh, you know, focus on building profitable businesses. And you might actually see a lot more of the Kickstarter private funding bootstrapped business uh, that takes a little longer to build and is probably a little bit smaller and less disruptive, but is more sustainable and has happier customers in the end, right? But that's, again, that's if, if we had to land on just one prediction right there, I think that's probably a, a pretty safe bet as a prediction. Can I give you one that's uh, probably a little harebrained? Yeah, yeah, by all means. So let's think about the next decade. We're predicting something really, uh, really crazy. I think we might see a hint of it in in 2020. I believe that 
there is a, in the same way that we talk about the Amazon effect changing consumer expectation, we actually did some quantitative market research to kind of prove this out. In our uh, broad market research, we found that 91% of respondents in North America claim to be part of Amazon Prime or have a family member that's part of Amazon Prime, 91%. That's an unfathomable number. Um, so 91% of respondents have Amazon Prime. And of those 91%, the top three reasons cited were free shipping and speed of delivery, which are 83%, 63% respectively, which are, is no surprise. I think everybody, you know, looks at Amazon prime as, you know, a, a members club that allows you to get free shipping and quick delivery. You know, nowadays they're offering one day delivery in a lot of uh, major markets, yep. including the one I live in the number three, the like of the 20 options given in our, in our market research, which included all kinds of things like, you know, early access to pre-order items or paying over time and in installments or, you know, getting free prime reading on Kindle. The number three most cited benefit to Amazon Prime was unlimited access to Prime Video, which I think is a really interesting outcome. And so that I think the consumer sentiment around the Amazon effect as free shipping and speed and quick shipping. Well, if you think about the the whole landscape, Amazon's not the only infrastructure player that's capable of delivering that anymore. We just saw this year in 2019 Shopify. Uh, acquired a, uh, a 3PL, an infrastructure warehouse management platform. You see uh, real estate companies like Blackstone investing in e-commerce infrastructure and uh, putting billions and billions into enabling mid-market and startups to have two-day and one-day delivery in major markets and to provide cheaper shipping. And I think if you look at that and think about it over a 10-year horizon, the Amazon effect may, may actually start to work against Amazon in that this, this customer expectation that they've had a moat around themselves for 12 years, this customer expectation of Amazon's the only place I can get that experience will begin to erode. And then I think the other thing that we see is that younger millennials and Generation Z are growing up in a world where there's a growing distrust and, dis and a growing distaste for Amazon's business practices and Amazon's treatment of its own employees and its lack of real sustainability uh, initiatives. And now they have a lot of PR sustainability that, that happens and long-term sustainability. But I think that uh, what we'll begin to see is a little bit of a, it, it'll be evidenced in a couple ways, is uh, a slowdown of adoption um, or retention of Amazon Prime, uh, which goes against our broad market research, by the way. 91% say they have it. Well, you know, 92% of those say that they're likely to maintain it okay. in 2020. So this is a true prediction. I think a slowdown of Amazon Prime is is probably inevitable as others become more capable. And the consumer will begin to think of Amazon more of a content creator um, and a value creator in original programming and in home automation and less around a marketplace that's a, a retail brand. So I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> yeah, so I've got a few here. Yeah. You know, I, I think the one thing that which could certainly slow that down is, I, I mean, everyone's predicting a recession at some point later this year or early 2021. And I think if you're looking at people that maybe can't afford it during a mm. recession, the the price tag of Prime as well, knowing that they have these alternative options might actually slow that, kind of weed people off that a little bit. So mm. that could erode it. You know, the other things I look at, I was always famously, I say famously, right? But that was kind of my shtick, my wife used to call it, that I was not a Prime member. And then mm -hmm. just a little over a year ago, I became a Prime member. And I wrote a piece on kind of what got me, but I primarily shop at Whole Foods, which 
you know, I have an Amazon credit card that I rarely ever used, but I would use it when I shopped at Amazon for things. But now that I'm Prime member, I get 5% cash back on the, the Amazon Prime card, which I can then coincidentally spend on Amazon. But it made sense for me. You know, the extra 2% right. based on the amount of money I spend at Whole Foods made tons of sense for me. And it was kind of a no-brainer. It pays for itself and plus some. Mm. The video never appealed to me. Not that it didn't appeal to me, but it wasn't a reason for me to get Prime. I actually, there's tons of shows on Amazon Prime. Me and my wife watched it now. And we use Prime Video for a bunch of things. So not that I have tons of time to watch TV, usually late at night after the kids go to bed. But video is one of those things that I did not foresee myself using much. And I use it a lot more than I ever thought I would. And to actually, for me to get rid of Prime, it would be the Whole Foods video combination, not mm -hmm. really the quick shipping part of things. So it kind of fits somewhat into that narrative a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. The Gen Z yeah. thing is interesting. Oh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, okay, I, let me make two observations about that, and we'll come back to Gen Z, because I think that that's probably a, a really key part of this conversation. In our research, we also asked about sort of trade-offs in where people are more likely to spend their time. So 53% of respondents are more likely to spend time meeting locally with people in their community, like friends and family, than to spend time on social media. But... They say that they would rather binge shows uh, than read a book, and they would rather order things online than go physically in store. So one thing that could hedge Amazon in that world and that mind frame of people who like community, but also like just the attention economy and, <laughs> and, and the convenience of ordering online is Whole Foods and grocery delivery. And I think that that could be an interesting moat for them, uh, especially as they develop infrastructure. If they can create a grocery service around the Whole Foods infrastructure that is more like the uh, infrastructure uh, AWS play, where they can allow and utilize others and enable others to build on top of that, they may be able to, to lengthen their time in the marketplace. The thing about Whole Foods that I think is really interesting about what you said is that the other part that is, uh, I think, a long-term danger to Amazon is they're becoming more known for sort of cheaper products and like mid-market products that are sort of a boring middle. Two areas that are thriving right now in retail are off-price and luxury and high-end. And Whole Foods definitely fits into the high-end luxury category. What Amazon fits in in, in the marketplace is, in, in the broad retail marketplace and landscape, at least in North America, is a weird middle which is a little bit, uh, as we see more people move out of the middle class into, uh, into higher earner, earners uh, with 12 years of sustained economic growth, um, we see people fall out of the middle class as they uh, age into retirement or live on fixed incomes or haven't achieved upward you know, economic mobility. We see the middle class drying up. And I believe that the long-term danger to Amazon, and it's evidenced by some of the things they've invested in, especially around SNAP programs, uh, government assistant programs, and uh, easy and cheap credit with Amazon Prime rewards being gifted to people that are of low income. I think that what we're seeing is Amazon also recognizing the danger of the middle class beginning to shrink. And I, so I agree with what you said, but I think that there's quantitative insight to why that might be true. So, sorry, I, I, I hate to distract us, but I think that that was relevant. No, it, absolutely relevant. So I appreciate you jumping in there. Hey, just out of curiosity, you mentioned number three was video. Number one was the the speed of shipping and yeah. the free shipping. Do you happen to remember what number two was? Yeah, uh, number two was, well, number one was free shipping. Number two was speed of shipping. Oh, speed of shipping was yeah. two. Okay. I lumped them together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but in incidentally, number four is free returns. And I think if you were to look at you know the top four, 
how, how can smaller brands compete against Amazon? How is Amazon in danger from the, the bigger marketplace of like the Walmarts of the world and Targets of the world? Well, Target and Walmart are both doing free shipping. They're doing a quick two-day shipping and they offer free returns. So that's not really a competitive advantage anymore. And you know what? Freaking everybody has a podcast, Greg. Um, so this this whole idea, you, including you and I, this idea that uh, Prime Video or original programming and content is is relevant only to major content creators that have massive capital behind it. High quality content is going to be hard to find, but you know this is the year of the podcast, twenty nineteen. I mean, Chanel has a podcast, Walmart has a podcast, freaking McDonald's has a podcast. And a lot of them are investing big time in user-generated content and video on YouTube. So uh, this idea that you have to have sort of a, a, an exclusive members-only service to get content from a particular brand that is considered high quality, where are we going to be in 10 years is the question I'm going to ask. I think you see online personalities that are you know, influencers, even you know, Generation Z, if you want us to have a nice little segue. You see a lot of younger influencers on TikTok and YouTube who have millions and millions and millions of followers. And I think that re represents an existential threat to someone who, you know, you know, Black Mirror is great, uh, Netflix, but it takes years to produce episodes of that. You know, you've got a kid in their basement with a, a you know, $150 or I'm sorry, a $1,500 camera that gets millions of views and it takes them two days to produce a video. I think that represents a threat. So I'm going to ruin your segue here for a yeah. second. Oh, okay. So <laughs> I, uh, I tried, I, I tried. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I appreciate that. I recorded an episode with the social media uh, manager of Walmart just yesterday. Mm -hmm. So uh, Zach Lonis and part of that conversation was around like his job is to drive content for store managers so they can use their Facebook pages and Instagram pages to drive local traffic. But that gives them autonomy to kind of do what they want. And part of the conversation that came up yesterday was this online grocery pickup or OGP uh, rap videos they did. So they, <laughs> they put threw it out to their associates and said, Hey, can you film a rap video about OGP? And they did this contest and they chose the 10 and then they brought them in. They did like, they brought them into a professional recording studio to record the winner and things like that. And this was to, to your point, it was a relatively quick turnaround for them, but it was all associate shot video. They got to write the lyrics, the music, put everything together. So they were trying to tap into their associates talent and they've subsequently done a bunch of these things. But to your point, he mentioned that people would go into the local Walmart stores when he would go run the stores to visit, and they would be calling people by their names. Oh, hey, hey, Marty. But it's all because of social media, right? So right. these stores are building a local connection with their target demo in a way that Amazon currently is not doing. So, yeah. you know, it's somewhat relatable to what you said on the social side. But I think there's also in that vein, we've talked to uh, actual infrastructure like technology players that are are very customer service centric that are actually starting to mobilize in, you know store employees to do UGC and that exactly what you're talking about but for the rest of everybody not the Walmarts and not the the targets and not the Amazons of the world and so there's a platform called Hero that actually does this and so you know they're starting with you know mid market uh, home improvement centers like the you know True Values or the Ace Hardwares of the world, but you know the local Chuck the lawnmower repair guy at your local True Value, yeah, he's becoming local famous, and he doesn't need to be any more than local famous. And people come in and call him by his name, and I, I so I think you're you're spot on in that trend. I, I wasn't I want to talk about Gen Z, but something off off the wall and sort of a bonus feature here. Uh, it's not an official third prediction. I don't have any quantitative uh, insight on this. If you were to follow the trend of what's happened in media around ownership 
and you start thinking about what's happened in the world around, you know, you owning physical, you know, physical things and physical goods. I don't have DVDs anymore, Blu-rays, right? I just stream everything. I don't have clothing anymore. I actually rent or, you know, I have quite a bit of uh, clothing rental. That's a whole thing that we could talk about. I don't technically need a car anymore between my bike, public transit and Uber and Lyft. Uh, I'm doing pretty okay. If you, if you kind of follow that and copy it to some other things, I think with the advent of Uber Eats and, and Seamless, we're starting to see the appearance of something called ghost kitchens. So they're restaurants that don't really exist. Uh, they don't have brick and mortar, but you can only get them on things like uh, uh, Uber Eats and Seamless. I think ghost grocery is also a thing. And so I think like an existential threat to all of this is, the, you know, this idea of the the brand that's not anchored in reality, but is, you know, truly just some sort of a, a virtual, a virtualization or an intangible shift away from physical retail marketplaces like grocery might be another threat in the Amazon category. You know, if you had a sufficient amount of capital, you could launch in a, in a mid market and have a grocery startup that could, you know, realistically compete against the Kroger's of the world, which I think is, um, a super interesting shift and something that would follow the rest of the trend away from ownership in the world. People are becoming more used to not having to be a brand uh, loyalist because of the, uh, the moat being, you know, the, the moat or the, the advantage being in the capital investment and real estate uh, market. But that's total aside. And I think it plays into the, the vein of what we're talking about here. And, but, oh, I, if you did want to segue, I think Gen Z is way more likely to buy into that idea than say, you know, older Gen Xers like me. So ghost kitchens, am I envisioning it almost like a co-packer? They're cooking things for a bunch of different things. So they just have a menu that you can order from. But I'm assuming there's another business practice, which is paying the bills. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, you you may not you you may not be a fan of Hooters, but you might like their wings. If it were rebranded just for Seamless, and you got the same product under a different name, you're probably more apt to buy it. And I think that there's a really interesting phenomenon there. Also, it's being deregulated in a bunch of states. Uh, it used to be that you you could only operate a commercial kitchen that had a license to operate as a commercial kitchen as a brick and mortar. That's no longer the case. I think a lot of health departments and states are coming around to the idea of you know virtual kitchens. And so as that begins to evolve in in the regulatory space, I think we'll we'll see more. Uh, experiments in this vein. Also, you know, consumer adoption is kind of a fickle thing. So consumers would have to lead uh, entrepreneurs into being able to do that. But again, it's probably less capital to start some commercial kitchen that can live, you know, in my area, you, you know, it's expensive real estate in Palm Beach. But if you were in, you know, an economic opportunity zone like Riviera Beach, there might be a real incentive for you to create a virtual kitchen in Riviera Beach and service the island. So it's it's an interesting thing that I'd be on the watch out for. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Let's try to segue a little bit over to Gen Z then. Yeah, so sure. you mentioned on the Amazon side, you get in the sense that there might be a little bit of blowback coming. Yeah. So Gen Z, I, I find interesting because I've presented on email marketing, the Gen Z and things like that. And you get these overarching trends and things like inclusion and, and things like that with Gen Z, right? There are always these common talking points for it and they want to treat everything better. But I always find this a little bit of a dichotomy because I always look at Chick-fil-A. Right, Gen Z loves Chick Fil A. Yep. I mean, just recently they they made an announcement, but there was never blowback with causes they support, which kind of go against a lot of 
or the, the typical narrative for Gen Z. Mm. So to me, I always look at it like, hey, we can try to pigeonhole these people. I say these people like they're a scourge, but we can try to pigeonhole this uh, this cohort. Is this where I say "Okay, Boomer" to you? Because I, I, <laughs> exactly. I think that's what they would say, right? That's, that's what we're right, supposed right. to say now. I, I'm with you, man. I'm uh, I'm Gen X. Yeah, you know, so we, we try to pigeonhole this cohort a little bit, but they always there's always these outliers in there, and I always look at Chick Fil A as kind of that outlier thing. They just they like the food, they like how they're treated there because they do a really good job of customer service if you walk in there and things like that. So, what leads you to believe that? you might get this blowback on larger corporations like Amazon, just using them as a, an example, but these larger corporations that maybe don't have sustainability initiatives, although they're, Amazon's trying in some vein to do that, but they have these different initiatives that kind of speak to the generation. What leads you to believe that there might be this this little bit of a blowback coming? There's, there's an interesting dichotomy in the Chick-fil-A uh, brand. I, I could probably, if I could sort of like prognosticate for a second, one thing that we talk about at Future Commerce, which is our own original idea, and I hate to keep promoting it, but it's this psychographic profile of a you know someone who might be a Gen Zer uh, who's younger. Uh, we call her Carly because it's an acronym for can't afford real life yet. So she probably depends on her parents or someone else or Lyft or Uber or something to get around. If she's not living at home, she's probably got roommates. She's dependent on other people to be able to kind of like you know live and, and work. That person is growing up in a world that is more divided than ever, who has a lot of sort of anger and discourse, where younger millennials are probably, you know, uh, very analytical and bought into cancel culture. Uh, Carly is probably not that way. Carly probably has a very diverse group of friends. They probably wear intentionally mismatched clothes. They create Spotify playlists for each other that are intentionally genre hopping and sort of, you know, ironic in nature, going from gangster rap to, you know, to classical music just because it's funny. And I think if so, and also she's probably more prone to like read uh, astrological signs and horoscopes and Enneagram. And so she's like probably more prone to look at the world as inherently flawed and sees people in her social group who talk about their flaws openly as more authentic. And so I think if you if you combine irony with the sort of intentionally and or authentically flawed, along with being very public about the things that you, you sort of believe in, even if they're sort of irrational, if you combine all of that, then Chick-fil-A's, you know, the, the brand loyalist to Chick-fil-A might make a little bit of sense because she'll tell her social group, yeah, you know what? I hate their social values, but gosh, their chicken's freaking good, isn't it? <laughs> and I, I, I think it really does marry up with that idea. Not that Carly has to be a Gen Zer, but I think Carly, you know, very well could be. And, and so when I think about it like that, I think it does ring true that it's possible that Chick-fil-A could exist in the world. But I hadn't really thought about it. I'm just kind of finding my way, way through that. In the Gen Z mindset, you have to sort of buy into, I think, generational groups as a whole, which I think some people just get immediately turned off when you go there. But I do think that the world is very different for someone who is, you know, Gen Z. And so I, having looked at this and having thought about it, I think that there is sort of a return to, we, we hear about this uh, trend um, <laughs> recently called grand millennials. Um, and it's these people who are uh, creating revivals of sort of lost arts or, or trends, people that like We'll sit around and knit and crochet, do needlepoint, mac macrame. <laughs> um, you know, they do puzzles with their friends. Uh, they're very much turned off by the attention economy. They're more aware now than they ever were of where they're spending their time due to things like, 
digital well-being on on Android or or uh, uh, screen time on iOS, things that allow them to set soft limits for themselves that you know sort of provide digital accountability of where they're spending their time. And I think that when you when you kind of take all of that in, as well as they're being more prone to share every every. Uh, moment, even the flawed ones, like not everything has to be perfect on social anymore. Gen Z is more likely to be on TikTok where they're intentionally like, you know, doing fails or their memes are around them making stupid mistakes or saying stupid things. I think the pendulum is swinging back away from the cancel culture that we've been going through the last four or five years that would try to do away with something like Chick-fil-A. I think the younger generation is probably turned off by that. So side note, I like puzzles. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. I do too. There you go. You know, it, it's funny because I think it's almost, I mean, it's like everything else and I don't think anything has ever changed, but, you know, speaking about the Gen Z to like Chick-fil-A relationship, there's always trade-offs with everything you do, right? Mm-hmm. No one's, no company's perfect, even if you want them to be perfect. I, so I recently, if probably the last podcast that that published based on when I actually publish them, I'll let you know, but I recently spoke to a uh, pack clothing. Yeah. So sustainability initiatives, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with them. And one of the challenges they said, and this is not a Gen Z indictment, it's just a overall kind of cause indictment. They said they're, they're, they face a challenge of as they grow, it's harder to grow, compete with like the, the larger brands like Hanes and things like that mm-hmm. while trying to stay sustainable because or have certain ethos that you're trying to stay with. So, you know, as they grow, they might need to change production facilities and they have certain standards for their facilities or they need to source something from elsewhere. So it becomes harder. But Drew said that one of the things that they've noticed is that as much as they tout it, people are not showing a willingness to actually pay more based on the fact that they are adhering to certain standards. And I think that's almost where the trade-off comes in. He's like, hey, we're not going to stop doing it because of that, because it's important to us. But we have to recognize that we do have to keep certain things within a cost control because if we raise prices, we've shown that they're not willing to pay for those things because they can make those trade-offs and get something elsewhere that is somewhat comparable, but maybe not quite as good. And I, I think that that balance and that trade-off is something that brands like this are, are probably trying to, to struggle with. And I know you've had sustainability conversations uh, and you guys have a passion for it, but yeah. you've had tons of conversations on your podcast with mm-hmm. retailers that are sustainable, fair trade, whatever it might be. Have you heard similar things from the guests you've had on your podcast? Yeah. And by the way, this was not set up in any way. This is also part of our market research uh, that's coming out for our 2020 predictions. So I I should do I, these I'm, unscripted things more often. It's as good. It's, <laughs> actually, it's, it's worked out really well. Yes, we have actually talked about that. We are climate neutral certified uh, at Future Commerce. So climate neutral is uh, a, a label like certified B uh, that is providing accountability for brands and, and media companies uh, and software solutions or software online software providers to track their carbon footprint and commit to reducing it uh, over time. And you're right, you do reach sort of like an asymptote, right? Like we're, we're going to approach the limit of, as we try to grow our businesses, we approach a limit that seems to have this really unfair trade-off of it's, it's really not sustainable for me. If I'm going to grow my business uh, and I have to invest in supply chain, I either have to change my business practices or... I have to sacrifice margins or I have to create products that customers are, they're so expensive customers won't buy them. So I do think that there is a challenge there. I do think that in our survey, we see that this is becoming a consumer expectation. 
so we asked a question among a certain set of choices, which of the following have you done this year? 41% of respondents uh, said that they borrowed, browsed, or purchased physical products from a secondhand thrift or consignment shop. That was the number one response. So I, we see a resurgence in thrifting and, and consignment. I think that tracks with the amount, uh, the growth of, of platforms like the Real Real, Poshmark, uh, ThreadUp, and, and others. Uh, and Facebook Marketplace, by the way, is the new juggernaut in that category where things like tr- Craigslist are taking a backseat uh, and are losing market share. Facebook Marketplace and sort of that person-to-person exchange of goods is is growing by leaps and bounds. Number three in, in the result, the number three result with 30% of respondents said that they browsed or purchased from a online secondhand or resale market. And then uh, another question we asked, which of the following statements reflect about how you feel about shopping? The number one response with 48% in our survey said that they love supporting small businesses and shop local whenever they can. 47% said they are actively focused on buying fewer and better things. So if you kind of combine all of those responses, the majority of people in our broad market research say that they want to buy fewer better or that they want to buy secondhand because it aligns with their values or that they just truly can't afford to buy new things all the time. And I think if we go back to Carly, uh, we do see a psychographic of a customer who will repurpose, reuse, or create new items that are you know, sourced in part from things that were already used that they had or items that were purchased secondhand. There's an interesting character a young kid uh, who's in high school still, who is a YouTuber with uh, 3 million followers. You know, he makes, you know, millions of dollars a year on YouTube. And uh, so he is certainly an outlier, but he's a thrifter. He goes to Salvation Army. He buys a bunch of, you know, secondhand goods. He cuts them up and makes new outfits out of them and then like draws on them and paints on them and, you know, gives them to friends or gives them away or wears them himself. Uh, His name is Marco. And uh, he started out as just a sneaker customizer. He's kind of a talented artist as a kid, 16 or 17 years old, um, and would like draw on sneakers. And now he's, you know, moved firmly into repurposing old items and thrifting. And I think that that tracks with the trend that we're starting to see. So, yes, you're right. We can't afford as a society to we can't afford financially to keep buying new things all the time and then disposing of it. And we can't afford as a planet to keep, you know, fast fashion has taken a massive toll on our environment. And it's, you know, it's not sustainable uh, ecologically, but it's also not sustainable from a, uh, a human fair trade and, and ethical work practices aspect. I think that we're beginning to realize that, you know, the cheaper the goods, uh, the more prone to poor working conditions, the people who actually create the products are. And I think, yeah, I think so we're coming around. And I think we has, we do see a trend emerging where people are, are spending less, but getting more uh, for their buck. So yeah, I, I think that everything that you said does actually prove out in our research. Very cool. And uh, is there a way for people to that are interested in the research? Do you guys have a report or anything up on uh, on your website? Yeah, so we we actually will be releasing it at NRF in January in coordination with our our research partner, a a platform, a customer service platform called Gladly. Uh, If you go to futurecommerce.fm January 3rd, uh, we should have an uh, early access available and and we'll be making that available to everybody. If you're at NRF in January, we'll have a printed version of the report to share around. And because 
I opened the show saying we have a culture of openness and, and sharing. Uh, we will be making the raw da data available uh, to those who request it to, you know, also gather and garner insights. Very good. You're not doing that for PR purposes. Not at all. At that, no. Are you? no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at some point you, you do, we also have sort of that ethical trade-off of, you know, we're, we want to perform the research to make sure that we're talking to the right people and providing value to the people that listen to our shows and the people that are making strategic business decisions based on our insights. But also it's kind of hard to get people's attention in our attention economy. And so, you know, you, kind of, you have to wave your own flag a little bit. So we're trying to balance that. I think that's kind of one of our intellectual struggles, if you will. It makes sense though, right? Yeah. I, I always say like everyone wants everything for free. I'm like, well, they, they got to make money, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, what we haven't done yet is a paid report. You know, I think that that's been a trend amongst uh, market research is that if you want the full report and the data, you have to pay $500 for it. We're not quite there. But I, I think we found a way to, to have a business uh, that is equitable. And, you know, we have some really smart people. We've got 11 folks at Future Commerce now that are, you know, only thinking about this kind of stuff. And um, so, you know, we are hoping to grow as well. I think we're trying to balance the purpose and the profit there. Very good. And I know we're pushing time because we chatted offline for 10 minutes before we even no, started. No, but this, it, this has been really up, wonderful. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to get you out of here on one last question. And by all means, keep the answer short because I know you have a meeting coming up. Sure. If we look at just the in-store experience over the next year, do we really think there's going to be any changes or is kind of what we see today, what we're going to see in the next year? Uh I mean, no, <laughs> I, I think, I think we're, we're battling physical retails struggles right now. And so if you see, at least in, as the middle dries up, we see luxury malls like Hudson Yards, uh, exploding and they are the ones who definitely can afford to invest in experience. And we also see family dollar and off price growing dramatically. They don't have experience, right? They have uh, off price, cheap and readily available. So I, I think that the broad marketplace, no, I, I don't think we're going to see a giant investment in, in consumer experience, but I am hopeful that technology does assist to have better experiences, but that doesn't mean that it's, you know, purely these, you know, whiz bang, you know, technology uh, investments. Excellent. So Philip, we'll have uh, contact info in the episode description, how to get a hold of you. How about verbally though, if someone wants to reach out to either you company, what's the best contact info you can throw out? Yeah. So I, we'd love to hear from you. Hello at futurecommerce.fm is the way that we encourage people to reach out to us. Uh, if you want to follow us on social, it's uh, Future Commerce pretty much everywhere. Uh, and if you want to follow me, I'm Phil Winkle on Twitter and, uh, and reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, but I'd love to discuss this, you know, at, at length with anybody who wants to open up a public conversation about this. So excellent. Philip Jackson, everyone, Chief Commerce Officer at Something Digital and host of the Future Commerce Podcast. Philip, thanks so much for your time today. And to those listening, especially our listener of the week, Marcus from Las Vegas. If you'd like to be a listener of the week, let me know you've tuned in. And if you're interested in telling your e-commerce or email marketing story, I'd love to hear from you as well. Until next time, have a great day and be kind to one another.